You're listening to The Eye of the Storm. I'm your host, Taye Sherrod. After listening to the first episode, you're probably wondering, who am I? And how did I end up in the line of work that I did? And so I want to take this opportunity to introduce myself and to give you some background information related to where I come from and how I grew up. Again, my name is Taye. I was born and raised on the west side of Chicago in the Austin community. And if you know anything about growing up in Austin, you know that you know gangs are not uncommon, drugs are not uncommon. It wasn't uncommon for us to hear gunshots on a regular basis. We grew up in the middle of a food desert, uh, so we couldn't get you know decent fresh fruit or fresh fish. We had to go to Oak Park if we wanted to get those kinds of things. Um, so I'm no stranger to that, but I'm also no stranger to what police brutality looks like. I distinctly remember an episode where the police, for some reason, were chasing after my brother, and as he got to the front door, my grandmother, understandably so, went to see what was going on, and they physically pushed her back into the hallway slammed the front door shut and continued to do whatever it was they were doing with my brother outside. Fortunately, he was released and everything was okay, but I, again, am no stranger to what it's like to live in that kind of environment and the toll it can take on you. Fortunately for me and my siblings, we were raised by my mom, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother, who were very intentional about making sure that we got our education, and so I was fortunate enough to go to some of the best schools in the city of Chicago. I started up at Disney in Uptown. That set me up to be able to go to Lane Tech over in Roscoe Village, which then set me up to go to one of the best universities in the country. Um, I studied economics at the University of Michigan, and that's also where I got my introduction to residence life as a whole and to working in that field of student affairs It was important for me to be an RA at that time because my sister was in college at Loyola at the time and my mother was literally taking money out of her 401k to support me and my sister going to school. So me being a resident assistant was my way of contributing to my education. Um, Being an RA gave you free food and free housing. So that was clearly very important into keeping my financial costs in line. And frankly, I don't think I would have been able to get through college without that opportunity of being an RA. But with that being said, uh, it was my introduction to student affairs and it was my introduction to what it meant to serve in an on-call capacity. As many of you who went to college might remember, the RAs were the people walking around the floors at night uh, looking to break up the kegger parties you were having on Friday and Saturday night and to make sure things didn't get completely out of hand in the residence halls. Those were some of the things we were tasked with doing, but most people also don't know that RAs work with students on a lot of other issues too, from things like homesickness all the way up to sexual violence. If someone really trusts their RA and has a good relationship with their RA, which as someone who's been a hall director in the past trains their RAs to try to have really good relationships with their residents, it wasn't surprising for someone to come to an RA with an issue of sexual violence or stalking or something along those lines. So RAs are really doing a lot of groundwork, too, in terms of helping to make sure that students are safe and can get their education. Resident directors, hall directors, community directors, there's a lot of different names that are used for it in higher education. But essentially, 
These are the folks that are responsible for overseeing everything that's happening in the building. So they supervise the RAs. A lot of the times they have a responsibility in supervising the front desk and the mail room. They are the adults in the building and they're the ones who are responsible for making sure that students are safe and the ones that RAs call when they have a real issue that the RAs just simply aren't equipped to handle on their own. Resident directors often serve in an on-call rotation, usually about a week at a time with other resident directors who are in the system with them. And they serve to deal with a number of issues similar to what the RAs are dealing with. They get calls from students who are overly intoxicated, that are high, drunk, so on and so forth. And depending on how bad the situation is, you might get a call from an RA at 1 a.m., saying that there's a real serious situation and they need you to come down and handle it. Oftentimes, these individuals are in their mid to late 20s. They generally speaking served as RAs during their undergraduate careers and have a bachelor's degree. Many times these individuals, myself included, went back to school to get a master's degree in higher education. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on with some of the philosophy that goes along with serving um, in higher education and getting your master's degree and the philosophy that goes with how we treat our students because it's critical, I think, to this conversation and how it can be applied to community policing overall. But just know that these are folks who have been to school for the sole purpose of learning how to work with students to make them the best versions of themselves. Now, similar to police officers, professional residence life staff are not clinical psychologists. They are not drug abuse counselors. They did not go to get a master's in those specific areas. They didn't do clinical um, research and clinical studies or clinical um, rotations to get a better grasp of how to deal with folks who may be dealing with anxiety, for example. However, they do have some very important things that are working in their favor that I think traditional law enforcement seems to be lacking when it comes to managing communities. First and foremost, these professionals do not view their students as enemy combatants. Like I said, when we go to school to talk about student development, we understand that our students are learning and growing and that they're going to make mistakes. Our job is to help them learn from those mistakes help them make sure that these mistakes aren't permanent mistakes that they cannot undo so they can go on and get their education and go on to do great things. We help students find the balance and trying to be good students and making good decisions for themselves while at the same time still enjoying their college experience because we definitely want them to walk away feeling like it was an experience that was worthwhile both socially and academically. The other thing that they have going for them that law enforcement seems to be missing is that these professionals have the experts on campus with them who actually did go to school and study and get master's degrees and PhDs and things like clinical psychology. So a lot of the times they will go over to those folks who are across the hall or across campus and say, I run into this situation with a student. I'm not entirely sure how to handle it. Can you give me some feedback or can we bounce some ideas back and forth off each other to help me navigate this situation? Same thing with uh, sexual violence and sexual assault. A lot of the times there are women's centers on campus and those individuals who work in those places on our campuses are trained experts in their area. So a lot of the times they will give us lessons and help us learn how to use tactics such as trauma-informed care to work with survivors of sexual violence. So when we do get that call in the middle of the night from an RA who says, I have a report of a sexual assault and I need your assistance with that, 
We know how to work with those students. We know how important it is to give the student agency and making decisions about what it is they want to do and who they want to talk to. We understand that there are certain things that we can't promise them depending on our role on campus. Oftentimes, residence life professionals are considered campus security authorities or CSAs for short. So for us, if we get a report of sexual violence, we have an obligation to report it. Um, but there are some folks on college campuses who are considered confidential advisors where they could tell them and they don't necessarily have to file a formal report. And a lot of the times when we get these calls, we'll walk students through that and help them understand whose roles on campus are what so they can make decisions for themselves about how they want to proceed given the challenges that they're facing. But even so, we have those professionals and those experts in those fields to talk to, to help train us and to help us continue to learn and grow as we deal with these situations on the ground in real time. Finally, residence life professionals have the benefit of working with colleagues who have been in the field for a really long time and have built best practices around how to deal with certain situations. And they pass that wisdom down to the new folks who are just learning how to deal with certain situations. Because there are things that are going to happen on a routine basis that we see all of the time. And there are best practices in terms of how to handle that. So for example, you might get a call from an RA on a Saturday night, you know, it's late and they say that there's a student who's clearly overly intoxicated. They've thrown up a couple of times in the hallway and they're having a tough time getting them to their room because they're being really belligerent. So as a hall director, you're going to go down and see what the condition of the student is. And your first and foremost thought is, if, is this student safe? Do I need to call an emergency transport to take this student to the hospital? And some of the things we look for is if a student is slurring their words so bad to where they can't form complete sentences, if they aren't able to stand up straight and are really wobbly and aren't able to coordinate their movements very well, or worse, if they're completely passed out and non-responsive, then we know that we need to call um, 911 for EMS services right away because that's not something we would take the chance on in terms of someone's safety. However, if that student can talk to us, even if they are belligerent in nature, if they can talk to us and we feel as though they aren't in any immediate danger, then normally what we would do is say, okay, who have you been with? Are they around? We try to get some friends of theirs who are more sober um, and say, how much has your friend drank? Do you know what's been their trajectory for the evening? So we kind of get a lay of the land of what we're dealing with in terms of this student. If they've used drugs in addition to drinking alcohol, things like that. Again, to try to make an assessment to see if we need emergency services at all on the scene. And once we get past all of that, we say, okay, we don't think that there's any immediate danger here. You really just need to go to your room and sleep this off and we will deal with the consequences of this behavior later. And so a lot of the times we'll tell the friend again, we try to find somebody who is sober and can take on this responsibility that, hey, you know, watch over your friends, make sure they've got some water and some Tylenol nearby, make sure that there's a wastebasket nearby in case they need to vomit. We tell them to make sure that they put the person on their side so they don't accidentally choke on their own vomit because that would be really, really bad. Um, we make sure that they have the cell phone number directly to the RA cell phone because the RAs carry cell phones as well. So we make sure that they have that phone 
phone number and that if anything goes wrong or they need any immediate assistance, they can call that RA to assist them in that situation. And we let the student go to their room and usually we tell the RAs, you know, do a quick couple pass-throughs, you know, in the next couple of hours, check in on them to make sure that they're doing okay and that everything's fine. Um, and assuming that we're all good to go, we'll talk about writing up the report and then having the conduct process take over from there in the next upcoming days as we talk to the student about what took place. Now, in this scenario that I just described, police presence wouldn't usually even be necessary. We wouldn't even really think about calling police in this instance unless the student was so belligerent that we really thought that they were a threat to themselves or somebody else and that that was absolutely necessary. Again, we don't wanna blow situations out of control. Our motto is that we want students to learn from their mistakes. We're not interested in getting them, you know, formal records with police and having records that they have to explain when they graduate and are trying to find employment. If we can avoid those kinds of things, we do so at all costs. So we don't really involve police in situations like this unless we absolutely have to. But on the off chance that it is that bad and a police officer is involved and we have to call for that kind of backup, there's still the full expectation that the police officers are going to respect our students, see the humanity in our students, and treat them accordingly. It is absolutely unacceptable, and frankly, in higher education, it would be unfathomable for a student to end up dead because one of us called police for assistance in dealing with this issue. That would be so far left that everyone in the college community would know about it. It would be routinely talked about. And we would be trying to figure out, so when is the president of that institution losing their job? Because it's so ingrained in the culture to not have those kinds of things happen and to have student well-being come first, that something like that, if it were to happen, would carry really serious consequences. Now, I'm not a police officer, and so I'm not going to assume anything about how they think. But based on my personal and professional experience, it doesn't appear that they have the same approach to the residents who live in their communities as we have as professional resident life staff when it comes to our students. Again, it would appear that they seem to look at their residents as enemy combatants that have to be stopped at all cost, as opposed to residents who, okay, maybe they've done something they shouldn't have done. Maybe they made a mistake. How do we hold them accountable for that? And how do we move forward through the process of doing what we need to do? Regardless of the intent of what police officers and police departments around the country are trying to do and the message they're trying to send, what message that gets received, particularly in Black communities, is that at the very least, we're a nuisance. And at worst, we're an outright threat. There is no way to build a community, let alone maintain one, in that type of situation. It just doesn't work for anybody. And unless police departments all over the country become very intentional about breaking down and rebuilding structures from the bottom up, the communities that they serve are still going to be skeptical of them. And that puts everyone at even more risk. I would know because I've had situations where I really should have called the police, where that would have been critical to my safety given what I was facing in a certain situation. But I didn't feel like I could do that because if I had taken an action to defend myself and called the police afterward, would they have seen me as just a black girl on a black block in a black neighborhood and that I wasn't valuable and that no matter what I said, I wouldn't be believed. I didn't have faith in the criminal justice system to do right by me like it hasn't done right by so many other people. 
And that is a fundamental problem. And in the next episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into that. I'm going to explain to you what this situation was and how it played out. And how if we're going to move forward in this country with real transformation of policing and to really build build it from the ground up, we're going to have to deal with some old demons that for whatever reason in our society, we keep running away from. And we can't continue to do that if we're going to make progress that stops the senseless killings that we see every single day.